Welcome to the Lemp Report Live. Today, a U.S. Senator takes on climate change, how 3D printed food has evolved or not. Dannon gives back. How about going out to dinner on an NFT? Another moonshot is happening, and this time it's all about food and agriculture. And there are three reasons that retailers are heading to the metaverse. Stay with us, you'll find out what those are. Kudos go to Nestle. A conversation about WIC and farmers and a return to my childhood roots with a major twist. Let's get started. Sally, what's Cory Booker up to? Hi, Phil. Senator Cory Booker is frustrated that the climate movement is not talking enough about food. He's saying that big food is the most powerful lobby of all and that their influence is causing destruction to our environment by leaving a little controlled in the agricultural industry. Well, what's interesting is he warns in a video uh, with the New York Times, the video is called uh, Meet the people getting paid mm -hmm. to kill our planet. Um, what he says is we're past a national emergency. As it relates to this, he says he's very frustrated that the incredible climate movement doesn't talk enough about food. You cannot solve the climate problem unless you fix the American and global food systems. So I guess my question is, oh, one, one other fact that I found shocking to me, less than 1% of U.S. subsidies go towards vegetable farming, less than 1%. Um, and, and we constantly are seeing how the FDA, you know, and USDA is giving out all these subsidies and so on. But I had no idea that it was just less than 1% that went to produce. I was really surprised by that uh, information as well. And I wonder if, you know, now that we're moving towards more consumers wanting plant-based foods and we are being encouraged more and more to incorporate fruits and vegetables into our diet if um if we're gonna you know start finding a little bit more balance with that with meat production and vegetable production yeah it's it's real interesting well good for good for booker again new jersey guy north new jersey yay <laughs> uh let, let's talk about 3d printed food Yes, well, if you're anything like me, it's hard to imagine how 3D printed food fits into your life. Um, it's it's hard to imagine really? how it works. <laughs> I, I love this idea. And, you know, we've, we've talked, uh, I guess, probably about four years um, that, that you can now buy, um, and it's relatively inexpensive for what it is. I, I think it's like 500 bucks. You can buy a 3D printer that makes pizza. Well, my son just this weekend asked for a 3D printer and I told him I had absolutely no idea how much they cost. <laughs> That's good to know. Well, but well, the one, yeah, the, the one for pizza is 500. I mm -hmm. think that's all it does. But there's different 3D printers that do different things that they can make, um, you know, make screws and make, you know, plastic mm -hmm. things and stuff like that. So I don't know what all that cost is. Well, apparently the, the the big upside to this technology developing more and more is that um, is that it could cut down on food waste tremendously. And it can also address food insecurity by making foods with less desirable 
ingredients look more attractive and more appealing. Yeah. And, you know, I've talked a long time about the idea when you go into a supermarket and you see these beautiful cakes um, and, and pastries that, in fact, if if in fact we could have a 3D printer there, they wouldn't have that kind of waste. Because mm -hmm. whenever you go into, you know, your Kroger, you know, down the street, you see, you know, probably a hundred different cakes uh, that are there at the end of the day, if they don't sell, they've got to either donate them or, or toss them. And this way I could just go in on my phone, plug in what ingredients I wanted. Uh, if I want less sugar, more sugar, uh, what color icing I want to put on it, any writing on it. And they could just print my cake um, as I'm shopping the rest of the store. I, I am a huge fan of, of 3D printers, but the reality is that they really haven't progressed all that much. Um, what, what this one report is saying is that the current market value is growing at an annual rate of 46% for 3D printed food and expected to reach a value of $525 million by next year. Wow. So, well, you know, get ready. Buy, <laughs> buy, buy Eli that 3D printer and he could make Yes, dinner. maybe it's closer than, yeah. than he thought. <laughs> he, he, can, he can make dinner. Um, you know, last week you, you did a great report on uh, Women's History Month. And, you know, it, it continues. So what's going on with Dan and, and women? Well, I love what they're doing here with these new light and fit products or, or diff two flavors that are new to the line. It's the uh, lemon cream and the orange cream Greek nonfat yogurt. Um, these two products are going to help raise money for an organization called Dress for Success. Now, I find this such a cool organization. Uh, we actually have this in our neighborhood, one of these um one of the branches of this. And what you can do is you can go in there and anywhere between one to $10, you can find professional uh, attire for work that is from really great brands, you know, like Banana Republic, J. Crew, and Taylor clothes that are really nice, nice for women who are having a hard time affording um, buying those clothes for it, whether it's for interviews or going to work. And what I found interesting about um, what's going on right now with women in the workforce is that nearly 1 million women left the workforce due to reasons related to the, the pandemic, childcare, you know, not so. So it's it's really important to uh, help these women get back and have economic independence. Um, and I just think this is a great program that Dannon has to support this dress for success. I agree. Um, I think I think that, you know, we need more companies to step up do things like this. We're all in this together. So that's what we've learned from the pandemic. So if we have these leading brands doing things like this, um, and, and sure, it's great to donate money to Feeding America and, and things like that, but we really need to stretch it out and, and do more things like this. So I agree with you. I, I love what Dan is doing. Um, interesting story about NFTs and how uh, two restaurateurs have decided to, you know, basically raise money using NFTs before they actually launch their restaurant. 
Tell us a bit more. This is a fascinating story. First of all, the makers of the original Burger Boy, they make this burger sound so delicious when you read about it. Yep. Um, but but they're they're working in kind of a reverse order when it comes to marketing because they're they are they're promoting and creating hype of the with about this product um, in the midst of raising funds by selling NFTs that um, are connected to these digital. Uh, art creations by Courtney Cassis and their images of the Burger Boy mascot in different forms. Like in one form, he's um, the classic Burger Boy and he's got a tattoo and he's wearing a V-neck shirt. And then another one, he's the fancy boy with the mustache and the top hat. So they're going to try and raise the money and then you'll be able to eat the burger. But, you know, what's, what's interesting to me and I'm going to get my calculator out. I should have done this before. But they are hoping to release 9,000 NFTs. So 9,000 and the price of a NFT today, and they haven't decided what their, what their cost is going to be, but it's between a half of a half of one to 0.1. Um, one is, $3,234, so it's three, two, three, just round numbers. If they go for 0 0.1 um, of an NFT, they're going to raise $2.9 million to do their restaurant. So I've got a question. Um, I love the marketing of it. I think it's brilliant of it. But if they're going to raise $2.9 million to open up a burger place, to me, it's like uh, a little bit of a scam. And they're going to start selling burgers out of ghost kitchens for $7 a burger. And then they're going to sell it in the metaverse. So they're only going to have a virtual restaurant. We, we should do this. We should raise $2.9 million and have a ghost kitchen. <laughs> well, virtual brands seem to be popping up, you know, all over in TikTok and in the metaverse. So it's, it seems to be a big trend. Well, if you look in November, Budweiser, they launched an NFT connection with 1,936 digital cans to, commem to commemorate the original can of Budweiser in 1936. Um, 36 of the cans were priced at $999. Again, the, these are not actual cans, but just in the metaverse. And then they have um, silver cans, 1,900 silver cans, that went for $499 each. And now, uh, two weeks after the release, they sold out in less than an hour of these cans. I don't know where people are getting all this money from to do this. Now you can buy one as a resale for $400,000. $400,000 for a virtual wow. can. I'm missing something. Um, <laughs> Texas A&M has decided that they want to change our relationship with food. Uh, they have a new moonshot that's, that's going on. And what they really are trying to do is switch our mind. Um, what, what they point out, which is something that I never really thought about, 
is the purpose of food systems in the past was to limit hunger. Makes a lot of sense. Now what they want to do is they want to change our relationship to food. Um, and, and it's coming at a critical time. What they also report is that nearly half of U.S. adults have some kind of cardiovascular disease, according to the American Heart Association. And more than 70% of American adults um, are, have hypersensitivity. So what's going on at A&M? Well, first of all, what really caught my attention about this is that the director of this new program, which is called the Institute for Advancing Health Through Agriculture, the director is Patrick Stover. Patrick Stover is a man that in the 90s that contributed to the discovery that folate deficiencies were causing birth defects. This was a major breakthrough and saved thousands of babies from being born with health issues and birth defects because then we started recommending that when women are pregnant that they are taking in that amount of folic acid that they need. Uh, so, so already he's a really outstanding researcher to be directing this team. And they're looking at they're looking at addressing precision precision nutrition, you know, because we we've been talking about that now for a while that we can't just expect a, one person to follow the exact same diet as another person. There are there are cultural differences, there are genetic differences. So so this is important to address one's individual needs for health. Yeah, I think it's I think it's great. I I agree with you having him leading it um, is fabulous. And hopefully we can have a successful moonshot and we could change the way people eat, the way people think about food, because I think um, they're really pointing out something that's that's so critical. Um, and, you know, we can change behaviors um, as a result of that. Um, let me head back to the metaverse for a moment. What, what we're seeing, and this came out of... Um, this came out of The Motley Fool, um, where what we're seeing is more people getting involved, as you pointed out, um, in the metaverse, more brands than ever before. And they give three basic reasons for that. The first reason is that Generation Z has grown up with metaverse-like economies. Uh, we've talked a lot about how the metaverse today, you know, is really a throwback to Second Life. Um, mm -hmm. It wasn't nearly as advanced, a lot of gaming that's involved. But there's a really good point um, that these Generation Z Zers, uh, born between 1997 and 2012, uh, were the first digital native generation. Um, and the Generation Z, sorry, millennials were the first digital native generation. And Generation Z is the first metaverse native generation. Uh, they've been playing um, Minecraft from Microsoft since 2011. And they point out that retailers you know, have to go where customers are, that you can't depend on customers coming to your stores. Number two, the retailers have a chance to create something interesting, um, which I think in today's world has never been truer than ever before. And the third one is that meta retailers require low daily input, but can return big rewards. Just as we talked about 
with NFT dining, um, with some of these rewards that, that are coming out, um, that, you know, I think, I think that the, uh, I think that the metaverse, while it's very confusing to a lot of retailers, uh, to a lot of people, I think um, it's going to hit this time. What do you think? I agree with all of these points that have been made here, particularly the first point about um, about the generational difference. You know, I've got a son who is Gen Z and I've got a daughter that's Gen Alpha. So um, and both of them are very dialed in and connected to the digital world and um and the metaverse is very exciting for them these and and you know that leads to the next point that um you were talking about about big box stores becoming more inviting um because you know if if Walmart is going to be in the metaverse, Walmart can be a much more exciting and more creative environment than your regular Walmart that you go into. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and the sky's the limit. So mm -hmm. it's something that we're going to keep watching very carefully and keep on reporting. Um, and now it's time for the Lemper Report. Nestle is taking steps to address child labor in cacao production and increase supply chain traceability with a new program that includes paying farmers cash for such things as enrolling their kids in school. Wow. Nestle is extending their 2020 pilot with a thousand farmers in the Ivory Coast of West Africa that enables families to earn about $540 every year for the first two years and around $270 each additional year. Now, let's put that in perspective, because when we hear $540, we say, ah, no big deal. Let's understand that the average income in 2020 in the Ivory Coast um, is the equivalent of $660 a year. So in addition to decreasing child labor and increasing cacao sourcing traceability, the program is meant to advance regenerative agriculture practices and gender equality. Other eligible practices to receive the cash incentive include growing other crops, raising livestock, and beekeeping, all intended to generate diversified income. Nestle has committed to investing nearly $1.4 billion in this program by the year 2030. This year, 10,000 families in the country will be eligible, and the program will be extended to Guyana in 2024, eventually reaching all cacao farming families in the company's global supply chain by the year 2030. The money will be distributed during periods of the most need, Nestle said, such as back-to-school periods and before the rainy season. And they'll work with such organizations as the International Cacao Initiative and Rainforest Alliance to monitor the participation. The program also leverages farmer feedback and third-party data collection and evaluation to modify and improve the program during scaling, as well as to receive guidance from a multi-stakeholder strategic advisory committee that's managed by IDH, the Sustainable Trade Initiative. Kudos to Nestle. On USFRA's Farm Food Facts webcast, I spoke with Brian Dittmer, the Senior Director of Public Policy at the National WIC Association, about the newest changes to WIC and its effect on farmers. For the complete episode, just head to usfra.org. 
I'm so happy that you talked about the education part, because WIC, um, unlike a lot of other programs that are out there, and there's some great programs out there, really has as its foundation the education about nutrition. Yeah, that's a key piece of WIC. And, you know, it really does distinguish WIC from other federal programs, because to, to achieve positive nutrition, it's not just about the foods that you purchase, but it's how you integrate those foods into your diet. And there's a, a wealth of research that really indicates that there's spillover effects for the rest of the family. So, you know, WIC is, of course, targeted at the children, but we see that not just the moms, but the dads and the grandparents and other members of the family change their shopping habits and their uh, cooking patterns to reflect the foods that are introduced through WIC. And with the increase in fruits and vegetables, one of the greatest pieces we're seeing is increased variety in foods that are purchased buy with consumers. So you're seeing, um, you know, pears, cherries, berries, having four or five times the amount of purchases because there's added WIC benefit available for fruits and vegetables. And so that not only means that you can introduce a greater variety um, to children at a critical time, but it's really when those lifelong taste preferences are being developed. So you're exposing children to a, a greater variety of tastes and, and hopefully integrating those tastes into their lifelong diet patterns. On today's Bullseye, we explore the latest plant-based food trend, the Jewish deli. Seriously? Hey, I grew up going to the Lower East Side every Sunday with my parents for what I think was most of my childhood. It was Katz's for a sandwich and then Henry's just a couple doors away for deli and deli salads to bring home and occasionally going to Rappaport's or Ratner's for a kosher meat-free vegan meal. So when I saw this story, my ears perked up. Impossible Foods tried to launch Impossible Pork and get a kosher certification. It appears that vegan Jewish delis are a thing. Vegan Jewish delis have been sprouting up everywhere, from Portland, Oregon, with the vegan Jewish deli Ben and Esther's, to Rochester, New York, where Rob Knipe opened grass-fed, a vegan butcher shop in deli in Rochester offering plant-based protein for the people. On the menu, you can find vegan chopped liver and pastrami, as well as beer brats, Korean guchang sausage, and mushroom bulgogi to larder run by Jeremy Umansky, a 2020 James Baird nominee for Best Chef, who runs a deli but includes a bunch of vegan offerings, including vegan pastrami that's made from mushrooms. Unreal Deli, a plant-based deli meat company, just expanded its corned beef to Publix. There's a carrot lox and beet-based Reuben sandwich. Let's go back over 100 years to the vegetarian hotel that was opened up in the Catskills in New York in the 1910, which had 100 rooms across 100 acres of land and included radishes and other vegetables from their garden, freshly baked pumpernilk, pumpernickel and challah, and vegetarian chopped liver, long before it became trendy on social media. There were salads like beet salad, tahini eggplant salad, soups that ranged from barley beans to millet, and entrees such as red kidney bean stew and sweet potato kugel. What's old is new again. And be sure you join us along with the Food Institute at the Protein and Plant Evolution Virtual Conference, June 1st through 3rd, as for the first time ever, we bring both sides of protein to the table 
and we discuss the future. Is it flexitarian? You know, join us. Um, all you can do is register. There's no cost to it. And we're going to have some really meaningful conversations. And frankly, we're going to change the discussion away from plant protein or animal protein to just talking about how all of us eat every day. So, Sally, any comments or questions today? Um, yes, my, you know what, my comment stream just disappeared, but I remember what I saw. So, um, John Turk Ford, John Turk Ford is how he's from Turk Flexitarian Foods. And he says, says food is medicine and wants to know what your thoughts are on the hybrid, um, uh, meat and seafood, poultry and vegetables. What are, you know, plant-based foods. What's your feeling about that? Is flexitarian the future? So, yes, flexitarian, in my mind, is the future. Um, and I think a lot of these uh, hybrid products or um, call them, you know, replacement products, the problem is that they're trying to emulate what, what the product is that they're trying to replace. They should stand on their own. They should be... Um, great tasting and also ingredient wise, they really need to be cleaned up. So if you look at a lot of these, you know, analog products that are out there and you read the ingredients, whether it's because of GMOs, whether it's because of other ingredients that people typically don't want, we forget that the reason that a lot of these folks um, who are buying these products are either doing it from a sustainability standpoint for the planet, they're doing it for a health standpoint, and then when you read the ingredients, you go, huh? This doesn't make sense. And also, um, there's a new report that came out that really is looking at the carbon that's being emitted by so many of these analog products and these hybrid products, and it's worse um, than animal protein. Um, so I think we really need to calm down. And again, this is one of the reasons that we're doing you know, the Protein and Plant Evolution Conference in June is to really get to the truth of it, to really have candid conversations about how to move forward. The reality is we know from a health standpoint and from a planet standpoint, we need to eat more fruits and vegetables. We need to eat less red meat. Uh, but it's about that balance that, that is just so important. It's not about the extremes. Agreed. And I'm going to put that link in the chat uh, for the conference there, if anybody wants to look at that. Great. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, we, we need a lot of people to sign up. We just <laughs> opened up registration, I guess, about a week, week and a half ago. We already mm -hmm. have um, over 200 people that have signed up. We're looking for a thousand. So you sign up. Get Sally's link and, and sign up. There's no cost to it. And we're going to have a very, very meaningful conversation. Um, and don't forget to go to supermarketguru.com where you could look at our archives, our past episodes. And also don't forget to sign up for our weekly Supermarket Guru newsletter. Have a great week and we'll see you back here next week. Same time, same place.